Are the kids finished coming through yet? I thought maybe there was a few more to go through here. I wasn't sure. That's, uh, I always say this, I know, every year, but uh, that's the greatest advertisement for greater things that we have here at our church for our building program. I mean, all three of these services, just uh, seeing these kids come by and having to be part of our service today and those who are singing here, we thank you all so much for, for helping us out and Carmen and all those helping her. What a, what a blessing to have them here with us today and to, uh, to help lead us in worship. Well, this is uh, Palm Sunday this morning. I'm not going to bring a traditional Palm Sunday message. I want to uh, talk about the cross. I mean, what I'm talking about here this morning, we'll kind of uh, later on, you'll see it's kind of tangentially related a little bit to, to Palm Sunday. But um, we always just talk about the cross on Good Friday. And uh, I love to talk about the cross of Jesus. So I want to get a jump on that here this morning. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Mark 15, I want to bring a message this morning. I've titled Trading Places. Uh, Mark chapter 15. I want to read verses 6 through 15. This will be our main text this morning. We'll look at a few other verses, but this will be our main text. Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed uh, to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. May the Lord bless his inspired and errant word to our hearts here this morning. After the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, his body was carried uh, through the streets of uh, his hometown of uh, Springfield, Illinois. And as you can imagine, people uh, lined the streets And as his body passed by, uh, one former slave was there. And as she put her young son upon her shoulder so he could see over the crowd, and she cried out in a loud voice, Take a look, he died for you. Take a look, he died for you. As we come this morning to to Passion Week, it's, it's not to Calvary and he was dying on the cross, that there was a man there about whom we could say the same thing. Take a look, he died for you. And of course, the man I'm talking about, Barabbas, we don't know what he did after the death of Jesus, but certainly curiosity alone uh, must have driven this man a distance. And the reason he did that, we can probably assume, is because the cross that Barabbas. But a few hours earlier, the the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, had, had freed this guilty man, Barabbas, and condemned the innocent man, Jesus, in his place. In the story of Jesus trading places with Barabbas, we basically have the gospel message. We have the gospel. You say this morning, well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel at its essence is God trading places with us. That's the essence of the gospel. It's the innocent taking the place of the guilty. Um, It's Jesus becoming sin for us. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, it's the just dying for the unjust. I think all of us here this morning, I hope we all know that the heart of Christianity is the cross. But at the heart of the cross is substitution of Jesus trading places with us. 
There's a great book, if you've never read it before, I would, I would encourage you to, to, to get it and to read this book. It's called The Cross of Christ by Heart and Mind, I believe. Here's what John Stott says, the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, while God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Now, you can't say it any more beautifully or clearly, I believe, than that. And that's what we have here in the story of Barabbas. The innocent one dies for the guilty. The just dies for the unjust. Now, Barabbas is mentioned in all four Gospels, and it's interesting. He's kind of just a bit player, but there's 38 verses. There are 38 verses in the Gospels devoted uh, to this man, Barabbas. And I want to look at his story this morning as a picture to us of the Gospel. And I pray if you've never accepted Christ as you hear the Gospel this morning that you'll be drawn to, to take Jesus as your Savior. And for those of us who know Christ, that it'll deepen our worship and our gratitude to the Lord Jesus for what He's done for us. I've got three simple points this morning. I want to set the scene, kind of give the background of what's happening here. Then I want to look at the substitute. And then I want to finish by looking at the significance of this for our lives. First of all, let's set the scene here. It, it's probably about 6 o'clock in the morning. It's Friday, April the 3rd of A.D. 33. And the story here of Barabbas is embedded in the fourth and the sixth trials of Jesus very early on that Friday morning. To kind of back up just a little bit, you remember that Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. Um, he's taken first to the house of Caiaphas, or to the house of Annas. Annas is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. So they take him to the house of Annas. Then he's taken away to the house of Caiaphas. Now, those of you who were with us in Israel a couple weeks ago, I hope you remember, we were driving along a road there right along the wall of the city of Jerusalem, and our guide pointed out they found the house of Caiaphas. There's an old traditional place that people pointed to. It's, it's not the right place. They've found now for sure the house of Caiaphas. You can see that as you drive by. That's where Peter denied Jesus in the courtyard there of the home of Caiaphas. So, Jesus is, is, goes and has a trial at the house of Annas, then they go to Caiaphas. Then the whole Jewish Sanhedrin, kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, gathers together and Jesus is tried uh, before them. But then the fourth trial of Jesus, he's taken to Pontius Pilate. So Jesus has three religious trials, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. Then he has three civil trials. And the first of those, he's taken to Pilate. Now, notice in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Early in the morning, again, it's probably 6 a.m., the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, again, that's this Jewish Sanhedrin, this ruling body, immediately held a consultation in binding Jesus. They led him away and delivered him uh, to Pilate. Now, what's going on here is the Jewish leaders have tried Jesus on a charge, a trumped-up charge of blasphemy, and they found Jesus to be guilty. But the Jewish authorities don't have the power to execute anyone. Uh, the Sanhedrin has no jurisdiction over capital punishment. So they have to take him to Pilate, the Roman governor, to condemn Jesus and secure 
uh, the death penalty. So this is the fourth trial then of Jesus. Um, I don't want to go into a lot about, about Pilate today, Pontius Pilate. He, he had his headquarters there at the beautiful city of Caesarea on the coast. Again, we were just there a couple weeks ago in the land of Israel, that beautiful coastal city. But during the Jewish feasts, Pilate would go to the city of Jerusalem and stay in Herod's exquisite palace there. And so he would stay there during the feast times uh, when all those Jewish pilgrims were coming to Israel. One thing about Pilate that's interesting, he, uh, he's from Spain. He was from Seville in Spain. Kind of always think of that movie, Gladiator, you know, the gladiator. He was, they called him the Spaniard, you know, this uh, Roman legionnaire. But what's interesting about Pilate, he was just a Roman legionnaire, just a Roman soldier. And you say, how in the world did he get to be the governor of Judea? And that kind of got him moved up pretty quickly. So uh, Pilate's the grand, uh, married to the granddaughter uh, of Caesar Augustus. Uh, but he's there in Jerusalem during this time, and the Jewish leaders, though, know that it's not going to do any good to go and tell Pilate that they have found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, because Pilate doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He, he has no desire to get uh, uh, mired down Jesus. So when they come to Pilate, what they teach basically is sedition or treason. In other words, he came, claims to be a king other than Caesar. So they, they add a political flavor to the charge, if you will. And that's why you see back up in verse 2, uh, Pilate questions Jesus and asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? That's the charge. And Jesus answered him, It is as you say. And by the way, if you'll look down here through the rest of the trial of Jesus here and all this, he never, the problem is he, he interrogates Jesus, and John's gospel gives a lot more of the background, but Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. In fact, three times in John's gospel, Pilate will say, I find no fault in this man. He's innocent. And even Pilate's wife has a dream, you remember, and she comes and tells Pilate that she thinks he's innocent. So Pilate sees here a total lack of evidence, and, and it's also interesting. I think Pilate marvels at Jesus. He sees how different Jesus is than, than other condemned criminals who've been brought before him. So Pilate can't bring himself to condemn Jesus, and he's predisposed to let Jesus go. And so Pilate is trying to find a way out to let Jesus go, but also to make uh, the crowds happy. So Pilate makes three attempts to avoid making a decision about Jesus. And the first one is the classic old tactic of pass the buck. He finds out that Herod Antipas is in town, and Herod Antipas was a, a son of King Herod the Great, and his jurisdiction was up north in Galilee where Jesus was from. So since Jesus is from that area, Pilate sends Jesus over to have a trial in front of Herod Antipas. So he's going to pass the buck and let Herod Antipas deal with this problem. You can read about that in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 8. It's a powerful scene there because Antipas is kind of mocking Jesus and making fun of him, and Jesus never says a word. He won't say one word. You know, you know how infuriating that must have been. You, know, you keep mocking this guy and taunting him, and he just stands there and looks at him and will never say a word. But Antipas basically finds Jesus guilty, and he sends Jesus back to Pilate. Now, this is Pilate's worst nightmare. He's trying to get rid of him, but he comes back. And so this now is Jesus' sixth trial. So he's before Annas, then Antipas sends him back to Pilate again. So the pass the buck tactic hasn't worked. So Pilate tries a second tactic, and that is he tries to avoid making a decision here and let the people make the decision for him. We could call this, let's make a deal. 
Now look at verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. So there was this Passover amnesty tradition where they would grant clemency or pardon or amnesty to one prisoner during this time of year. Now this was probably related to the deliverance of the Jewish people from their Egyptian bondage. That's what they celebrated at Passover. So kind of as a gesture of goodwill and kind of in keeping with Passover and the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt, one a guilty prisoner is allowed to go free. So it's, again, it's kind of a gesture of goodwill. It's kind of the Romans kind of threw the Jewish people a bone every year at Passover. Now, Pilate seizes on this tradition as a way to get out of the problem he's facing. He believes surely that the people will ask for Jesus to be released, and so he believes this is his chance to get off the hook. Now, in verse 7, we're introduced to the other main character here. It says, The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, three times in this passage, we have Barabbas mentioned by name. Now, what do we know about this man? Well, his name here is Barabbas. Barabbas is an Aramaic word. Bar means son or son of, and Abba or Abbas means father. So Bar Abbas means son of the father. But there's another really interesting twist here. Probably his name was Jesus. You see that in Matthew 27, 17. Some Bibles will have a note in the notation there. Most scholars, really good scholars, New Testament scholars, believe that his name was Jesus Barabbas. So in Matthew 27, 17, when Pilate says um, to them, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Christ? Jesus, the Son of the Father, or Jesus the the, the Christ, who of course literally is the Son of the Father. You see the irony here. It's Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ, the Son of the Father and the true Son of the Father. Jesus Barabbas. Now, that's his name. What about his crime? Matthew 27, 16 calls him a notorious prisoner. And the word notorious means to mark upon. So, Literally, he was a marked man. He was kind of like a public enemy number one or number one on the Roman most wanted list in Judea, a notorious prisoner. Mark in chapter 15 here in verse 7 calls him a murderer. Uh, Luke in chapter 23 verse 19 says he's guilty of insurrection and murder. And in John 18:40, he's called a robber. Or literally, it's one who seizes. So probably he's like a terrorist or a kind of a, a guerrilla warrior or something like that. A lot of people believe that, that Barabbas was part of the zealot party in, in Israel. They were kind of an uncompromising uh, group of patriots who fanatically agitated Rome, kind of a, a group of freedom fighters. Other people believe that uh, Barabbas was not that noble of a figure. He was just kind of an independent rogue who was fighting more for his own personal gain than really for patriotism. But either way, he's a rebel and he's a robber and he's guilty. Now, what's interesting, if you look all the way down in Mark 15 and verse 27, it says they crucified two robbers with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. The word robbers there is the same word used in John's gospel for Barabbas, for what Barabbas is guilty of. So the third cross in the middle was for Barabbas. 
Barabbas was probably the ringleader of the group. The middle cross had been intended for him, and his two partners in crime were going to be crucified on either either side with him. Now, through this whole scenario here, though, it's interesting, Barabbas never utters one word. He never says anything. We don't have any of his spoken words. Now, that's the scene. Now, let's come to what I call here the substitute. Pilate is a true politician, and he sought to get out of the difficulty like a lot of politicians would because a lot of politicians love to get out of decision-making, so they can't get blamed for it, right? So Pilate believes he's found a way to sit on the fence and please both sides. But the problem is his plan backfires, and it backfires badly. Again, the, the, the plan here is, is kind of this let's make a deal. In other words, I'm going to release to you someone you want released, and he thinks they'll take Jesus. I like what one person said, though. They said Pilate's plan backfired. His hope for a loophole became his noose. So notice in uh, verse 6, now at the feast, he used to release for them a prisoner. And verse 8, the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, I think Pilate says this with sarcasm. I mean, he doesn't really think Jesus is the king of the Jews, but what he's saying is, if Jesus, if this is the kind of king you want, then you can have him. Because Pilate sees him as harmless. I mean, he doesn't think he's guilty. He's no threat to Rome. So he's saying, if you consider this guy to be your king, if he's the king of the Jews, then you can have him. I'll, I'll let him go. Now, I love verse 10. This gives us a little insight into Pilate here. For he was aware the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate sees this whole thing. He sees through this charade, and he says, look, I, I know the, these leaders, they're jealous. That's the only reason they're bringing him here. He sees right through all of this. Now, in verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowds to ask him to, receive, to release Barabbas for them uh, instead. And so the people cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas. The Jewish leaders here are the instigators with the crowd to get them to call and to clamor for the release of Barabbas. Now, Pilate's heart is sinking at this point. His plan's gone awry. And he doesn't know what to do. He thinks, I got myself out of this deal. They're going to ask for Jesus. I'll be done with this whole mess. Now, verse 12, answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So he's saying to them, okay, you want Barabbas to be released, but if you want me to release Barabbas, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? And again, they shout out here, crucify him. Now, many have pointed out here in verse 12, you have in some ways the, the question of the ages. What will you do with him who's called the king of the Jews? In some ways, that's the question of all eternity. What will people do with the one who's called the king of the Jews? When it comes to Jesus, there's no neutrality possible. We're either going to accept him or we're going to reject him. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who's the king of the Jews? And, of course, they shout out here in verse 13, they shouted back, crucify him. And one of the gospels says, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to be king over us. Now, I want to comment just a little bit about Palm Sunday here at this point because 
a lot of people point out that on Sunday, as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, the crowds are there yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the word Hosanna means save now. They see Jesus as a military Messiah. They see him as a, a conquering ruler who's going to come and throw off the burden of, of Rome. And so they're saying to him, save now, save now. And they quote a messianic psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, people often see that. And then a few days later, you have the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. And I've heard a lot of sermons over the years of my life, people saying, that's how crowds are. They're fickle. You know, one day they're for you, and a few days. I don't think that's the point in these two cases. I think you have different crowds. The crowd, when Jesus is coming in at the triumphal entry uh, on that Sunday, is a crowd of pilgrims. Remember, people are coming from all over, uh, really all over the, the world of that day, but certainly from all over from the land of Israel for Passover. They're flooding into the city. And Jesus has come to Jericho and up to the Mount of Olives, and he's coming into the city. And these pilgrims who were there, some of them gathered, probably a lot of Galileans who know him. They're there saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the crowd here on, uh, at Jesus' uh, condemnation, at his uh, uh, trial, this final trial, are probably Jews from Jerusalem who've been influenced by the religious leaders there. So these are two different crowds, I believe. That, that I think, explains the, the dramatic change that we see here in, in their response. But when they shout out, crucify him, then Pilate says in verse 14, what, why, what evil has he done? In other words, Pilate's calling upon them to produce some evidence to justify their demand. You want me to kill this man? What evil has he done? But notice they say, they shout all the more, crucify him. The only answer of the crowd is a louder and a fiercer call to crucify Jesus. And verse 15 says of Pilate, this is a sad, tragic statement, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over uh, to be crucified. So he placates the crowd. He appeases these agitators here. Now turn, to John, turn over to John's gospel, to John 19 with me for just a moment, because there's something else that happens here that, that Mark doesn't record that's powerful. You know, I've said up to this point that Pilate tries a couple of tactics here to keep from having to condemn Jesus. Um, first of all, he tried pass the buck, you know, send him over to Herod Antipas, let him deal with him. That didn't work. Then he tries this, let's make a deal. That doesn't work. The people call for Barabbas instead of Jesus. So he tries one final tactic, and that is sympathy. Look at chapter 19 of John's gospel, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, when people were scourged in that day, they were, their arms were wrapped around a, a large post, and they were beaten with a, 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 an instrument that had a wooden handle and you had the leather tongs. You all probably seen that with pieces of bone and metal on the end. It would take all the skin off your back, lacerating down to the, the veins, and often they would say people could see someone's organs uh, through that. I mean, it's a, a severe beating Jesus receives here. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they put a purple robe on him and they began to come up and say to him, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
Jesus then came out wearing the, the, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And in, in, in church history, that's become known as ecce homo, behold the man. What Pilate is doing here is one final attempt to avoid crucifying Jesus. What he does is he has him scourged. I mean, think about that. He's just beaten and bloodied. He's been up all night long. He's got a crown of thorns on his head, spit in his face. He's got this purple robe on. And Pilate basically looks at him and says, behold the man. In other words, look at him. Isn't this enough? He's calling on the people to have sympathy. Basically saying, look, I've done all this to him. Isn't this enough? Look at him. Hoping the people will say, okay, that's enough. Uh, we're done, and they'll all go home. But notice he says all of this, and the chief priests and the scribes saw him, and they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, his last-ditch effort of Pilate to try to get off the hook here doesn't work. The sympathy ploy didn't work. They, they, they won't settle for anything less than execution. The crowd is literally baying for the blood of Jesus. And, of course, the last thing that Pilate wants is to have some kind of riot or uprising on his hands there at Passover that will get him in trouble with the authorities back in Rome. So he cowardly acquiesces here to their demand. He releases Barabbas, and he condemns Jesus. And it's powerful to me, as I mentioned earlier, all through this, Jesus never says anything. One Bible teacher I read years ago called this the silence of the Lamb. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 says of Jesus, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter and he's silent before his shearers. He never says anything. It's a, a haunting silence. Now let's look at the significance of this. While we don't know what happened to Barabbas, we know why this story is in the Bible. I've, I've alluded to this already, but Barabbas serves as a striking symbol of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is, that Jesus died in our place. The story of Barabbas is literally the gospel in the gospels. This is the gospel message itself within the gospels. Now, we can picture the scene in our mind, and many have, have kind of developed this over the years, and so I'm kind of borrowing this from other people, but it's a striking picture. You think about Barabbas, he's inside his cell on the premises. They're there probably in Herod's palace. Barabbas is being held there somewhere on the premises, and he's waiting for the guards to come and to take him out that morning to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, to crucify him. Now, I'm sure Barabbas hadn't slept all night, and he probably hadn't slept for many nights because I'm sure that, that uh, Barabbas had seen people scourged before. And remember, think about lying there at night thinking that's what's going to happen to you the next morning. And I'm sure he had watched many, many people be crucified and seen them hanging there languishing on a cross and writhing around, suffering for many days. Most of the times, the corpses were just left on the crosses to rot for the birds to come and feed upon. And it's, it's said that when people would be on a cross, that before they would die often, they would literally go insane. And so here he is inside his cell early in the morning, and he begins to hear a, a rustle of a crowd out there. Now, now think about this. It's all uh, made of, of, of stone, you know, the, the palace, and so the sound would reverberate loudly. And so he probably can't hear what Pilate is saying because it's just one man speaking, but he could certainly hear what the crowds were saying. 
And when Pilate said the words, who do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Christ? The crowd yelled out, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then Pilate said, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus who's called the King of the Jews? And the crowd yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. So all he's hearing probably in his cell is Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. And his heart begins to pound, and you could think he must have just broken out in a drenching sweat because the time of his horrific torture has come. But a few minutes later, here's the sound of, of a, the, those hobnail boots of a Roman soldier on the limestone floors there walking towards his cell. And his heart sinks, and the door goes open, and suddenly one of the soldiers swings the door open and says, Barabbas, get out of here. His heart sinks because he thinks he's being taken out and he doesn't understand what's going on. And finally, the, the soldier says to him, you're free to go. Now imagine his shock. I mean, he must have been numb as he, as he rose to his feet and kind of stumbled out there in total shock. I and mean, he's free to go. And you can imagine him walking out into the sunlight of that spring morning there in Jerusalem in delirious disbelief that he's a free man. And he must have begun to ask, what in the world happened? Why am I free to go? And he must have learned, I'm sure pretty quickly, that he was free to go because another man named Jesus had died in his place. Now, wouldn't you like to know what happened to Barabbas after his release? I know I would. There's a lot of legends that have risen up around his life, but we wonder, did he continue in his evil ways? Uh, did he go on to worship the one uh, who died in his place? Uh, did he go and watch Jesus and his two friends, um, his two partners in crime, did he watch them die? And you think about that, if so, if he goes out to Golgotha, maybe from some distance and watches this, he could have said the same thing that that woman said to her little boy on her shoulders as the body of Abraham Lincoln looked by. Take a look, he died for you. He's literally dying in the place of Barabbas. Jesus dies for another man. Jesus trades places with Barabbas. And Barabbas then is a picture, a striking picture of the grace that God has for us in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel message. The gospel message at its heart is about God trading places with us. It's the innocent dying for the guilty. It's the just dying for the unjust. Jesus, who knew no sin, the Bible says, was made sin for us. So Barabbas was supposed to die that day, and he deserved to die. He was a murderer. Yet one who was totally innocent died in his place. Jesus, the Christ, died in the place of Jesus Barabbas. So that middle cross was for him, but he missed his cross because another person died in his place. So Jesus, who's the true son of the Father, who's sinless and innocent, is beaten and crucified, and Barabbas, the other son of the Father, though guilty and sinful, is set free. A.T. Robertson, the great New Testament scholar, says this, There between the two robbers and on the very cross on which Barabbas, the leader of the robber band, was to have been crucified, his substitute died. So Barabbas misses his cross literally because another man took his place. But each of us here this morning can say that Jesus took our place spiritually 
on the cross. Like Barabbas, every one of us in ourselves, in our sin, we are doomed. And we're on death row spiritually, if you will. But Jesus bled and died for us as our substitute. One of the most foolish statements I've ever read was by uh, Oscar Wilde. He, he lived a very debauched, very profligate life, a great playwright. He foolishly said this one time, nobody has to die for me. That's not true. The gospel message is God dying for us. It's God trading places with us. That is the message of the gospel when you boil it down. Charles Spurgeon is a great preacher. I know many of you have heard of him, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, he lived in, in England, in London in the, late, in the late 19th century. Um, when he was nearing his death, here's what Spurgeon said. My theology now is found in four little words. Jesus died for me. I don't say that is all I would preach if I were to be raised up again, but it is more than enough for me to die upon. Spurgeon's dying. He said, look, you can reduce everything down to four words. Jesus died for me. It's substitution. Jesus traded places with me. He took what I deserved so that I'm free to have life. He was naked so I could be clothed with his righteousness. He was condemned that I might be set free. He literally experienced hell that I can experience heaven. In every way, Jesus took my place and your place there on the cross. Jesus is our substitute. Years ago, I heard uh, D. James Kennedy preach a sermon. Some of you may know him. He was a great Presbyterian preacher down in Florida. If you ever heard him speak, he was one of the most erudite speakers you ever heard, man, his voice and just his demeanor. I mean, he kind of spoke in King James English, and it was just really powerful to listen to him. But I heard him tell a story one time in great detail. It's one of the most gripping stories I ever heard. And uh, I ran across a rendition of that from him, from D. James Kennedy. I want to read it to you. It's, it's a wrenching story of, of substitution. He told this story like this. He says, back in the days of the Great Depression, a Missouri man named John Griffith was the controller of a great railroad drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, uh, to work with him. At noon, John Griffith put the bridge up to allow ships to pass and sat on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. Time passed quickly, and suddenly he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed it was, one, it was 107, the Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board. It was roaring toward the raised bridge. He leaped from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower, but just before throwing the master lever, he glanced down for any ships below. There a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap poundingly into his throat. His son Greg had slipped from the observation deck and fallen into the massive gears that operate the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, his mind whirled to devise a rescue plan. But as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew there was no way it could be done. Hear the clicking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks. That, that was his son down there, yet there were 400 passengers on the train. John knew what he had. The great massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express began to roar across the river. When John Griffith lifted his head with his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train, ladies in the dining car sipping coffee, and children pushing long spoons into their dishes of ice cream. No one looked at the control house, cried out at the train as it went by, I sacrificed my son for you people. Don't you care? 
But every one of us here have had the opportunity to hear what our Father has done for us and uh, go by, as it were, in the train, uh, carelessly neglecting what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. The message for every one of us here this morning is very simple. Take a look. He died for you. You can look to Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what the Bible says. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. One look at Jesus in faith purchased a full pardon for you from all of your sins. And if you're here and you've never received that free gift, you're seated right now and calling out to you saying, I loved you so much. I've given my son. If you'll believe in him, you'll never perish. You'll have eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you now humbly this morning recognizing the sacrifice that was given for us. Father, we thank you that Jesus came and he traded places with us, that he took damnation for us and he took it lovingly, that he was naked that we might be clothed, that he went to hell that we can have heaven, that he was condemned that we might go free. Oh, Father, what a Savior. We thank you for him. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never looked to him and lived, that they'll do that this morning. Let's take a look at the one who died for them. And Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that you will create down in our hearts this morning afresh a longing to know you more deeply and a depth of love and a gratitude to you, our great God, who substituted yourself for us so that we can know you and have eternal life. Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for Jesus. May his name be praised forever. Amen.